0: Find a location near you at Bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, Member FDSC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btofer at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is John Vinci to talk about his book, Reconstructing the Garrick, Adler and Sullivan's Lost Masterpiece. John Vinci, FAIA, is a senior partner and practicing architect at Vinci Hamp Architects. He has been an architect in Chicago for more than 60 years and has taught the history of architecture at the Illinois Institute of Technology. He has extensive experience in exhibition curation, design, and restoration. John, thank you very much for being here with me today, and welcome to the show. Thank you. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
1: Well, I was the last of seven children. My parents were uh, born in Sicily. I was the only one to go to college. In those days, that was quite, you know, an adventure I walked to my local college, which happened to be IIT, I knew nothing about Mies or um, Frank Lloyd Wright for that matter. And uh, I was totally naive, but um, they accepted me on probation, so to say, and I started architecture school at IIT and much to my shock. When during orientation, they walked us through the campus and showed us uh, this building, which was now called Crown Hall, and said, this will be the home of the Art School of Architecture. And of course, for me, that was astounding to see this all glass building uh, and to think that was gonna be my classroom. So that was uh, uh my initial initiation into architecture, um, but I went to school. Uh, you know, I had a rather lousy high school education. I you know barely got through I through uh, the exams at IIT. I don't I don't even remember, but I got a letter the day before the school started saying, "Dear Miss So and So, you have." Been accepted on probation, and I thought, "Wow, well, it's not my name," but that was the woman who sat next to me. So I think I'll just go and <laughs> with tea, and there I was. Um, it was a different time, you know. Schools were not so rigid, uh, and anyway, I had some great teachers uh, in in Crown Hall. Of course, Mies was still teaching at the time, but not. I was in the undergraduate school, but I had, um, you know, the initial teachers who started uh, some of the classes, like Walter Peter Hans, who came to uh, Germany with me. I had uh, Jack Bronson, who um, was a student of Mies that designed the uh, Civic Center in Chicago, uh, and then my mentor was Alfred Caldwell who was this incredible uh self-taught man who worked for Jens Jensen at one time and he was my history teacher and my structural teacher for construction courses and he was uh astounding I mean uh he uh was sort of like a 19th century man he spoke you know of things uh, like Chartres and um, uh, Louis Sullivan almost in the same breath. So he made comparisons of history of architecture by uh, intertwining some of the architects like Louis Sullivan and John Root, along with, um, and Mies of course, along with the, you know, the great buildings of history. And uh, that was an interesting um, idea. I mean, it wasn't forced. It was an idea that uh, impressed me very much. And, um, and uh, I struggled through five years of IIT, but I graduated on time. My first job was at Skidmore Owings in Merrill. And my parents were thrilled to see me go to school in a suit and tie. And then six months later, uh, they were, uh, Richard Nickel, the famous photographer, was picketing the Garrick. He was a friend of mine, and he was picketing to save the Garrick, and this was an unheard event. Uh, Nobody ever picketed a uh, commercial building. You know, you would picket to save the Roby house or George Washington's house, but you never picketed something that was commercial because in America, you own your property and you do what you want with it. So, so to say, but we were out there with picket signs and of course we lost the battle. We made a lot of news. Um, and then, uh, lo and behold, I get fired at Skidmore. And the next day I get a call from Richard Nickel telling me that, Uh, He needed two people to help him salvage the ornament and that the money collected would be distributed by the municipal library of the city of Chicago. And that's where the idea, you know, working, I didn't work for the city of Chicago, but I was, uh, it was under their auspices, so to say And anyway, I went in there every day with Richard Nickel and David Norris in cold weather. And we bought ourselves some helmets, which were World War II helmets on how naive we were. It turned out to be the linings, not even the helmet. And we went in there and we start little by little saving ornament and boxing it and collecting it. It was a miserable job, uh, but the building had been abused over the years with signage and um, remodelings that it was almost unrecognizable as a great work of architecture. And um, But that's where the seed was planted. I remember it being in that building and thinking of this building and how we were seeing its bones and the steel and how things worked and how the staircase probably designed by Frank Lloyd Wright was such a elegant, simple, modern stair for its time. And, uh, uh, the building started to speak to me and I realized the more I worked on it, the more I realized that it had more meaning than just another Adler and Sullivan building. And that haunted me for, uh, you know, most of my life. And, So now I'm working for, you know, I started an office. Uh, We did a lot of restoration. I did, I was specialized in exhibition design, but um, when uh, my office went to Revit, um, they found me as kind of a, you know, they didn't want to deal with an older person in the office, uh, even though I was the (laughs) designer for most of the time I was in the office. You know, you realize that the younger people need to have their own uh, expression uh, in architecture. So I sat there rather depressed and I learned how to do CAD and I decided I would analyze the Garrick Theater. And that's how this exhibition and catalog started. Uh, I started by... um, there were a couple of renderings Adler and Sullivan's office made. They were cross sections and I never understood them because the building turned out to be a composite of bearing walls and steel structure. And, uh, I, I wanted to understand it. So I started to make these drawings and trying to understand these cross sections and the drawings got more and more interesting to me. And, um, and then i happen to know fred eichner who is the head of alpha wood and um you know owned a Ando house and had just built an Ando uh museum in fact we were the associate architects for that and um I said, Fred, I'm doing these drawings on the Garrick. Uh, I'd love to do a small exhibition. And he said, he wrote me, he said, well, talk to uh, Alpha Wood, which is the foundation. And uh, they gave me free reign. I hired uh, Chris Ware, the um, famous cartoonist, along with um, uh, Tim Samuelson, who is a great great historian of Chicago and uh, and myself. And we put together a program for this exhibition. And meanwhile, I was doing the drawings um, and um, suddenly we had COVID. And so I moved my operation to my basement and uh, I worked from there and I did all the research there, and it was a terrible time to do research because museums were closed, the libraries were closed, but somehow I squeezed in uh, visits. I got uh, microfiches from the Art Institute. Fortunately, I knew a few people, and they were sending me amazing doc- uh, drawings. They had scraps of Garrick. And uh, it turned out that the Chicago History Museum had 98 engineering drawings that nobody had ever paid attention to. And they, uh, Tim Samuelson knew about them, but he never saw them. So I finally get a, a meeting there and they let me copy them. And, um, you know, I'm not an engineer, but suddenly Made my drawings more complicated because I was learning more and more about the building, and time was going by and um i you know I caught on to a lot of things I was you know mostly interested in the design of the building, but now I was confronted with all of the engineering of the building, and that turned out to be phenomenal and um I couldn't personally handle the whole situation well I hired a former employee of me named Angela Demma and she helped me uh, clear up my drawings and my line weights and so forth and she spoke Italian and she had a conversation with uh, two people from Venice uh, once a week they oh, supposed she spoke Italian to them and they spoke English to her. And they heard that what I was doing and they said, oh, the University of Venice might be interested. And I said, no, no, the Italians don't know anything about Sullivan. Well, sure enough, there was this Marco Pogaknik, who was the head of the restoration program at the University of Venice and he gets wind of the project, and Angela sends him all of my documentation, not to mention, by the way, I had over a thousand photographs taken by Richard Nickel, the photographer. Um, I once owned the archive, which I gave to the Art Institute, so they were a little free at letting me back into my archive, and uh, there was a young man named Eric Nordstrom, who had copied all the photos. uh, So suddenly I had tons of material to send to Venice. And the Venetians took this project. I mean, you can't believe how seriously they took the project. They took my drawings. They corrected some of my structural uh, guesses and... uh, my exhibition uh, eventually came came to be at the uh, building. It's called the um, what's it called the 659 Wrightwood Museum. The Ando Museum uh, was approaching. Chris Ware decided he was going to design it as an as kind of an environment more than uh, you know i thought naively would be my drawings and a few pieces of ornament well Chris Mayer were made the exhibition into a uh it's hard to explain but it was uh, you were enveloped by the building when you walked in there was all my research all the color research all the discoveries I made about the interior all on the wall and ornament and huge blow ups. uh, That it was uh, a phenomenally popular exhibition in Chicago. Uh, And then the Italians decided they would do their version of it. And uh, so that's how this all came about. Meanwhile, I did a catalog. I I hired what I thought were the best writers, including Tim Samuelson, I hired uh, Daniel Bluestone to write a history of the preservation movement, and then I hired a guy whose name turned out to be Nickel, like Richard Nickel, Kirk Nickel. First I hired his wife, who was a curator at the Art Institute, and she said, well, maybe I'll work on it with my husband, whose name was Nickel. So I thought that was a great omen, but uh, he uh, wrote, I thought a phenomenal article on the art of the building, because the idea of the Garrick building, by the way, I'm I'm doing all the talking, sorry to say, but- That's all right. the, The idea of the building it was built by the German population of Chicago. And they had a vision, this one man who was a um, owner of a newspaper, he had the vision that there would be this building called the German Opera House. And he hires Louis Sullivan and he, and, and they designed this building. Well, the building was intended to have German theater uh, and opera and mall. And, uh, such, but it failed from the day it was, it opened. Um, the, the manager died who had good, great plans. Uh, two years later, the, uh, the, the editor who sponsored the building dies and the building is left and uh, the Germans barely get to use it. There are some plays and some fascinating incidences that happened there. But for the most part, the building was in disarray. Almost, you know, years, couple of years after it was built, the color scheme was eventually changed. The lighting was uh, redone. The, um, uh, I mean, it, it's just one fiasco after another. And by the way, they they call the building the Schiller Building because of right. high aspirations. Uh, so that name was changed to once called the Dearborn Theater, then it was called the Garrick. So the Garrick is the name that we stuck with. Um, and then, you know, sort of most of its life it had been called the Garrick. So, I mean, I don't know, I, I went a little far, but that's, that gives you an idea. The catalog has now won two major book prizes. Um, and uh, I'm very proud of that. I because I, I was the editor. I wrote some of the text, of course.
0: Yeah, uh, and as a disclaimer to everyone listening, the book is very graphic. I have a lot of photographs, diagrams, drawings. So there's there's a lot I think we can cover, but there's quite a bit of graphic part to this as well.
1: It has foldouts. It has a little booklet that Richard Nickel. Who, by the way died uh, 10 years later in the another Louis Sullivan building that was being torn down called the Stock Exchange building. And uh, so his little notebook is in the, is in my catalog. And when you buy it, you get this little Richard Nickel uh, facsimile. Uh, it's a, it's an original design. I mean, Chris Ware is phenomenal designer and he sees things very differently than I, you know, I being an architect saw everything rigid and clear and uh, academic. He saw it as a, um, an experiential um, uh, uh, attitude of how to look at buildings. Uh, you know, he's a great fan of Louis Sullivan's and uh, the Prairie School Um, And uh, so it was an interesting experience. Another thing that happened is the, one of the people at the um, Alpha Wood said, why don't you do a virtual reality film of the building? And I thought, well, sure. If you give me the money, I'll find somebody. Well, it turned out that in Chicago, uh, the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation had just completed one on the Larkin building. So I called them and I got the name of Razin Khan from Bangladesh. And I emailed him and I said, can you do a video of this <laughs> Victorian building in Chicago? And, and he was thrilled and he worked his tail off. You know, he had never done anything with so much ornament and complexity, but there's a great... 15 minute film, which I think is on YouTube that you can see of the, um, uh, it's like it was made in the time of the Garrick. You know, you walk down the street, you walk in the building for the first time, you get an idea of what the theater was like, which uh, is a beautiful little theater in the color scheme. And, uh, and it's, of course, very dark inside, so I left it dark. I, I'm now regretting that, that I should have pumped up the color a little to make it more exciting. But uh, it certainly conveys the uh, building in 1893.
0: Great, and you had mentioned, and again, there's a lot of history of the building, and there's an entire section dedicated, and you hinted at a lot. I mean, even, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright even... Had an office in there at one point. I guess the question I have is, I personally was not familiar with the building, and so I never like to assume that you know was the building historically well regarded or was it somewhat of a an unknown historical architectural artifact.
1: Well, that, that's a very interesting question because Louis, I mean Louis Sullivan, to me was one of the great architects of our time because he had a philosophical underpinning besides the architecture. And so the ornament is related to the building. So the idea of saving ornament is important to me and to Richard Nickel and a lot of other people. So we collect the ornament, but, um, but the, what is interesting about that building it was their tallest building. And the Stock Exchange, by the way, was their largest building. So their tallest building gets torn down and it's practically not in the history books and ironically when sir bannister fletcher came to chicago to see the world's fair the only building he picked out as exceptional was the garrick building the Schiller, and he has a little drawing in the in my edition of the building of the book so it's an archaic looking building. I mean, you have to you have to visualize what people looked at at that time, but it, it's strikingly modern if you if you can see it that way. And Sullivan used that prototype to design another building which was never built, which was going to be called the Fraternity Tower, where he takes that building and he multiplies it in this funny way it would have been 42, 43 stories tall had it been built. So it is an important building, uh, but it was lost to history, um, really, literally lost to history. And, uh, you know, we certainly know Louis Sullivan's Auditorium building. We we admire the Wainwright building. There's the Buffalo building, uh, which is also a beautiful building. But um, the Garrick is... is uh, I I think uh, it was very underrated and by the way Frank Lloyd Wright was working for Sullivan at the time and had a lot of influence on the on the details of the mm-hmm. building. and he had his offices in the building also for a short time so um it, it, and, it and it is a kind of a freak of a building one of its <laughs> interesting aspects was it was between two other buildings so it didn't have a corner site. And so engineering wise, they had to build a building between two existing buildings. So the first thing they did was hire the best engineers and they, they pounded 750 foot long posts, uh, oak posts into the ground like needles to give the building a, a base. And that base is used today on this. There's been two other buildings since it's been torn down on that site. They still use that foundation, that, that footing of piles. And it's one of the first commercial buildings to use piles, by the way. Interesting. And, yeah. And then, and then on top of that, they had squeezed in there this theater which seated 1,300 people and and it's encased in a bearing wall. And then on top of that, there are trusses that accept the steel for the skyscraper above it. So, I mean, it's, it, you know, we talk about organic architecture and all those Frank Lloyd Wright people, they, they go on and on about organic architecture but they they don't realize that this is really organic architecture where the structure and the walls begin to formulate you know a a living or almost living object and you know they become a cladding i mean they really become organic and i think that's been lost by a lot of the the kind of architectural historians in my book Uh, I once wrote a paper (laughs) on the organic architecture uh, for the Guggenheim, they never published it. I mean, now I realize it's naive, but I believe more and more that, um, you know, when when we talk about organic architecture, we are talking about the combination of structure and envelope and, and the movement of space. And not so much in these little houses by Frank Lloyd Wright is the, the word is mostly defined as. I mean, I'm going to get shot for saying that.
0: <laughs> no, and again, uh, for everyone listening, a very interesting approach to kind of looking at the history of the building while it's unfortunately being ripped apart and torn down. You talk a lot about a lot of rooms and obsolete staircases that nobody sees after all the multiple renovations so yeah very interesting process
1: that's that's
0: right right uh, and, oh i'm
1: sorry go ahead Oh, no, you go ahead
0: and so i was gonna i was gonna ask uh you know unfortunately i guess i'm gonna give away the spoiler it has a sad ending it is a parking lot is it still cur- currently just a parking lot no no no
1: it, did, it wasn't a par- <laughs> it wasn't a parking lot it was a parking garage which oh. is funnier because they they took one of the ornaments and multiplied it for a facade. So it came to look like a uh, you know, perforated facade, like something that uh, Edward Durell Stone would have done in 1960. <laughs> that was his period as a matter of fact. So now that's gone and it's now the uh, Goodman Theater uh, complex is on that site. And when you think about it, my God, if they had kept the Garrick uh, what a wonderful theater that would have been for the Goodman or anybody. but the city was the city was too afraid to save that building. They could have saved it easily. And there were a lot of shenanigans going on uh, behind the scenes. and finally it went before a judge and a judge looked out his window and said, "You know, I'm not a uh, you know an architectural critic, but if somebody told me this was an important building, I would you know, I would have to listen to them, and uh, and of course the the next court overruled that decision, and the building came down. Uh, and daily, you know, daily, who appeared sympathetic behind his your back, he was you know dealing with the owners Balbin and Katz, and saying, "Don't worry, we'll get your building down." You know. Right. So it's not, um, you know, the, it's fiendish. You know, the uh, politics of, of architecture and uh, restoration, <laughs> preservation are fiendish. I mean, they're not. They're Unfortunately,
0: not, yep. Yeah. Well, again, I know we could talk about it all day, but I do want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us about it today. You're welcome. And for everyone listening, the book is Reconstructing the Garrick, Adler and Sullivan's Lost Masterpiece. Thank you very much for listening and have a great day.